Welcome to Stories of Recovery, a MAR Recovery Resources production from MAR Addiction Treatment Center. I'm Matt Shedd. Despite heavy daily opiate use, Eric was making good money. He was eventually even offered a position as vice president of his company. Initially, he thought drugs were just providing a helpful way to cope with the frustrations of daily life. But he could see things were escalating when he lost his friend to an overdose and found that he was unable to stop, even though he wanted to. I remember getting in my car and driving to my dealer's restaurant and on the way there just knowing, like I had no illusions, like this, this is not gonna end well. But my anxiety is going crazy. I don't know how to deal with any of this. The only thing I know how to do to manage it is to get high and try to prevent fallout. After passing out behind the wheel of his car, he ended up at Mar at the age of 30. Eric discusses this humbling experience of coming to Mar and how he began to learn to rely on others. After treatment, everything was going well. He went back to work and he thought maybe he could drink socially since alcohol was never his drug of choice. However, he found himself soon going down a familiar path. But thanks to the foundation that he had laid at Mar, he was able to reach out for help before his whole life collapsed. He got clean and sober again and remains extremely involved in Mar volunteering on our Recovering Professionals program and coming by our center multiple times a week. Here's Eric. So what was your your drinking slash using history like before Mar? Um, before I got to Mar when I was 30, and um, my primary, my drug of choice is as an opiate guy. Um, and probably for the last... Um, five years before I got to Mar, it was heavy daily use. It was like better living through chemistry for me. Yeah. I thought that like I had gamed the system and like, you know, all these things that everyone struggle with, struggles with, um, I had found a workaround. Yeah. And it was really just a question of um, managing and making sure there weren't consequences rather than you know, this is really going to be a problem because, of course, it's going to be a problem. Yeah. And I had, like, um, for my career, you know, I'm working very hard during the day. Um, but then at night, I'm always getting high to relax, calm down. Um, and it's just like, this is this is the system. Mm-hmm. And it worked pretty well for a while. And then it became about it not working in my private life. And making, you know, damn sure that this doesn't cross over into my, into my professional life. Yeah. Because no one can find out about this stuff. Yeah. I would say for like those last three or four years before I got to Mar, there were many times, man, that I was, I was desperate to quit. It's Mm -hmm. just like, I cannot keep doing this. Something would happen. uh, You know, I flipped a car and rolled the car and and walked away unscathed and like this is the thing like i'm finally you know both me and i think my family were kind of waiting for like something to happen like eric's finally going to wake up and grow up so there's the car wreck and then you know and i was think i was 26 somewhere around there i had spent all my money on prescription opiates and my family had found out and i had to move back in with my family from where I was living in Atlanta, back to Johns Creek. And just that that ego deflation and that embarrassment of moving back in with my parents. And I remember being like, this is it, you know? Or times I'm sitting around the kitchen table with my mother and my father and 
my mom's crying and I'm just hurting them so much and I'm looking at them. It's just like I, I can't do this anymore and I don't want to. So this is it. But, you know, it kind of – it never was. Mm-hmm. So there was just, you know, years of buying prescription drugs on the street and, you know, I was always con- – you know, I one of my best friends uh, – uh, several of my good friends, one of my best friends, um, died of an overdose, um, several years back, I think about a little over four years ago now. And it's just like, thanks. Thank you for saying that. It's just like devastating and I wasn't dealing with it, but it was just like very much like, how do I make sure that this doesn't happen to me? And I had, you know, all the reasons why it wasn't going to, Uh um, which, you know, ended up being meaningless. I was able to somehow stay sober for his funeral. Mm-hmm. And I was, I grew up with him. I was very close with his family. Um, his father was one of my first mentors. Um, so I used to work for the guy when mm-hmm. I was like a freshman in college. And um, when he died, it was just like one of dozens of times I said, you know, never again. And it's like, I can't, there's no way I'm going to keep doing what I'm doing. But then I think that lasted like maybe a week. And then after that, it was just like, okay, how do I manage this? How do I manage this? Yeah. I think this is the part that's really hard for family members or friends or whatever to understand because it's like to see like, oh man, Eric's a good guy or whoever's, you know, and it's like, and he has all the reasons to stop, right? Mm-hmm. And and you did, and you were you were serious. You weren't lying, no. you know. Like you were like, I'm gonna stop. My friend just died. You know, this is like this is it. So can you like is it? Can you get back there to what happened when it was finally like a tipping point of like I'm gonna start again. When I picked up again, yeah, like just um, using that one as an example. Yeah. I know you you said it happened dozens yeah, of times, yeah. but I think it was. Um, I didn't know I had no skill set or no ability to deal with my feelings, to deal with the sadness, to deal with the loss. And I didn't know, I didn't have any other tools um, around Aaron's death and other things. You know, I can remember times of, you know, not being sober, but being uh, clean, so to speak, for X number of days or weeks or whatever. And I remember getting in my car and driving to my dealer's restaurant and on the way there, just knowing, like, I had no illusions, like, this, this is not going to end well, but, like, I don't, I'm, my anxiety is going crazy. I don't know how to deal with any of this. The only thing I know how to do, the only thing I know how to do to manage it is to get high and try to prevent fallout um and things just got bad enough emotionally particularly after aaron's death where it's just like i I just can't deal with this and Mm -hmm. i don't know what else to do um and i was uh not going to ask for help because i had it in my mind that i should be smart enough or strong enough or whatever Mm -hmm. other egotistical stuff i wanted to tell myself that like i'm I have to get high today because I don't know what to do, what else to do. Uh-huh. But tomorrow, I'm going to be able to figure this thing out. Yeah. 
it's one of the things that uh, took me so long to ask for help is because for a long time I just had this career to hold on to and I, I would you know I was losing everything else mm-hmm. you know I'd lost the relationship with a woman I was hoping to become engaged to and was living with and this was going to be the person that I'm going to spend the rest of my life with and she left um, far later than she probably should have and I was devastated but at the time it's just like okay so I still have this career like I cannot lose this too um, just trying to somehow hold on and think that, you know, one of these days I'm going to wake up and I'm going to be able to quit and quit for good, mm-hmm. but it just, you know, never happened. Yeah. The, I guess the straw that broke the camel's back, so to speak, would, after she moved out, you know, was just a wreck and like, I don't want to deal with any of this. I certainly don't want to feel any of it. So I'm, you know, getting high every day and I'd asked a friend to help me move some furniture, um, into the apartment cause she had taken most of it. And, uh, um, I stopped off and met up with my, uh, my drug dealer and I got an amount of pills that, you know, I'd been using for years. It was like, you know, four or five pills and I was in a parking lot and I, um, I would snort pills. That's mm-hmm. how I like to get high. And I remember crushing up the first one and leaning down to use it. And then everything just went black. And um, I woke up in an ambulance. And they had narcaned me uh, two or three times. And I remember waking up. I had no recollection of, you know, how I got there or what happened. So the first thing I asked EMT was... Ooh, it's just like, uh, did it, you know, did I hurt anyone? Cause I thought maybe I'd gotten back out on the road and I had wrecked with someone. And she said, she said, no, and it's just like, thank God. And I got to the hospital and somehow talked, um, my way into letting them, my way into them allowing me to kind of walk out the back door and get picked up rather than be arrested on the spot for DUI and, you know, I had a warrant out after that, and that whole process is finally what kind of brought things to a head. But I had uh, I had never overdosed before, and I had this rationalization in my mind that while these pills are costing me so much money versus heroin, like, I would rather go bankrupt than die. Um. And this is going to keep me safe from fentanyl. And, you know, obviously it didn't. But I later found out, um, you know, I was in court uh, speaking to my attorney and then I got a chance to speak with the police officer and the EMT that responded that, um, you know, I guess what happened was I was in a parking spot and I have no recollection of this, but Mm -hmm. I backed out of the parking spot and went to shift into drive and then ran into a curb or a telephone pole or something. Mm And some woman that was in the shopping center saw and came out and saw that I was unconscious and called uh, 911. But that's the thing, Matt. It's like I have no recollection of backing out of that spot and, and trying to drive away. But if I hadn't have done that, no one would have seen me and I would have died uh. more likely. So, Yeah. That's that's kind of you know the crisis that brought me in here as as Doug always liked to ask us but it was just uh 
honestly, I'm I'm surprised it didn't happen sooner than it did. And then was it basically like you did you detox at the hospital? No, I left the hospital and I didn't get into detox for about another month. Uh, okay. Um, and at that point, were you still using? Oh yeah, month? yeah, oh, yeah. You know, um, at that point, um, un- you know, it's somewhat uncomfortable to say, but like at that point, I was just, I was done. Like I had lost friends. I had lost my the most important relationship to my de- to my life to that date, and. Um, you know, my family had known for a long time and I'd just been trying to quit and failing and trying to quit and failing. And I just, uh, I didn't care anymore. It was just like, you know, one of these nights I'm gonna lay down to go to sleep and, uh, I'm not going to wake up and maybe that's okay. Um, that last month was particularly dark like that. It's just like, I, I just, you know, I'm, I can't seem to get better and it just, I'm I'm okay with not dealing with this anymore. Mm -hmm. It just seemed extremely, you know, selfish thing. Um, and I didn't want to hurt anyone around me, but it's just like, I was, I was, uh, I was pretty done. Um, I remember talking to a therapist I was working with at the time and he was this was after uh, Melissa had moved out and he was trying to talk me into treatment um, and I was just like I cannot let my family down like if work finds out about this and my dad um, has this big reputation and like now he's the guy that uh, his son goes to work for the firm and then becomes a drug addict and has to go to treatment like just like I can't I've already put them through so much I can't do that to them and he was just like you know don't you think they want you to survive mm-hmm. and like at that point it's just like I wish I would have said like, oh, you know what? That's a great point. Let's yeah. check in this afternoon. But that's mm-hmm. not what it was, you know? Mm-hmm. It's, um, yeah. It was just, uh, you know, it was a difficult time, you know, difficult time. And also like the best thing that ever happened to me. Um, so I don't know. Life's funny like that. Yeah. Yeah. I know that the way you're describing it is really powerful because it's like, it just doesn't, for whatever reason, and our, and I think this applies across the board to people who have issues with substance abuse or not. But like, at certain times, certain things just don't. It's like that's not possible. Like yeah. it is not. Like no, you don't understand. Mm-hmm. Like like that surrender or whatever term we apply to it now. Yeah, it doesn't even seem like there's something to surrender to mm-hmm. in the moment. It's just like no, I can't. Like. That would be the end of everything. No. I, I mean, listen, Matt, like I, I came into Mar fighting. Yeah. Um, I got dropped off on a Friday afternoon after getting out of detox and Doug was up front and, um, you know, I was going through like the guidelines and the mm-hmm. regulations of what this place was. And I got to the end of the list and the last, I think, rule was that like everyone needed to attend a religious ceremony one one a week and i was just not having it and i'm kind of yelling at doug 
and he's giving it right back to me. And it's just like, I had that experience in my first treatment team for ARP as well, where it's like, here's, you know, a room full of people or a person that's only trying to help me. And I just want to fight as much as I possibly can against this. And I was just looking for an excuse, um, to like why I can't stay here. And I almost left. Because of the church or the yeah, religious that was the ex- that was yeah. the excuse at right. the time, yeah. It's just like I'm not willing to do this. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember checking, going on my phone and checking uh, the balance of my bank account and being like, I can stretch this for like a couple weeks, mm. drugs-wise. Like maybe I should do that. Yeah. You know? Like that's you know what a what a you know long term thinking, you know? right. <laughs> but like yeah, it's just like you know what Doug said to me is like you know he told me because he became my primary counselor when I was in treatment, uh-huh. and I still talk to him you know uh, about once a week. But um, after I got a half halfway, got out of halfway, I came back to the treatment center and um, sat with him and talked to him for an hour every week for for months. And he told me, he's like, you know, Eric, that first day you were really trying to convince me how angry you are, you were, but really you were just scared. Mm-hmm. It's like, a- absolutely, 100%, you know, but I didn't know that at the time. I was just looking for someone to fight with because I was so angry at myself. Um, I had to put it somewhere, you know. And it's funny, when my family, when my parents came back for family week, my mom went up to Doug and she's like, I'm so sorry for how my son behaved that first day. Mm-hmm. And Doug just laughed and he's like, I forget what he said, but something along the lines of like, don't worry about it. Yeah. It's funny because I made a complete ass of myself, but that is also possibly the reason or one of the contributing factors to why I got Doug as a primary one-on-one counselor. You know, mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't know if I don't have that big argument with him the first day that um, I get to spend so much time with him one-on-one because that relationship started out, you know, extremely rocky. And mm-hmm. when I got into um, the professionals group, um, that group is um, – you have to introduce yourself like you do it in all the MAR groups, but that group is particularly confrontational. Mm-hmm. And um, a lot of times guys will start – get to talking and Doug will stop them and – Say, like, you know, I'm going to let you put the shovel down. You know, stop digging yourself in a hole. And he just let me go for a while, man. Mm. He's just like, whew, I got called. You know, someone said, like, you know, you're delusional. You're, which I was, mm-hmm. you know, um, and all these other things, um, which were all true. And, like, I held resentment against those people that said that to me in that first group. And, like, I still see a lot of them. And the relationship has completely changed. But um, how was everything else going, like in terms of settling into the community? The community, obviously, like everyone else, I, you know, I put my stuff down and I said, you know, I'll give it 36 hours. (laughs) (laughs) And then it's like, oh, you know, guys in my community just kind of took me under their arm and just at least tried to calm me down and one of my roommates in particular who I'm still very close mm. with um, we we would I wasn't sleeping very much at that point because I was coming off of opiates and it's like maybe two or three hours a night but I'd get up early anyway and he would be getting up early as well and we'd just have a cup of coffee out on the porch in the mornings and just talk about 
recovery, about life, about business, whatever it was. And just like having people there with me um, is something I'm extremely grateful for. So the community over time was just like learning how to, to say nothing of learning how to be honest with other people. It's just like learning how to, in some small way, depend on other people uh-huh. was was a, a tremendously big deal to me. Huh. Um, and the community was 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 the primary thing there. Um, other thing, like when I was in phase two, I got to go um, volunteer. At the time, it was uh, Lakeview Mental Health at a at a Lakeview at um, an outside facility, which I was unfortunately right now they can't do because of COVID. But right. um, that for my in treatment experience, like because we'd go in and we'd sit in groups with people that are not there full time, they're partial hospitalization or whatever, and they're oftentimes they're dual diagnosis diagnosis, uh, mental health and addiction issues. And we go over there and for whatever reason, pretty quickly, like I, I recognize somehow, I don't know. Um, it's like, this is pretty nuts and pretty incredible that I get to do this. And like, I just felt a level of compassion for those people and not that I knew anything that they didn't know mm-hmm. but just to like be there with them in that space um was was a big deal for me because you know I realized um you know when I'm high and I'm spinning plates and I'm trying to manage all this stuff and I'm I'm basically the way I think about it is you know this last 3 or 4 years especially I'm I'm running a PR campaign for my own life you know just I got to constantly you know juggling things so everyone thinks it's okay and when I'm in that place um and and I'm also high a lot of the time I'm just I have no awareness of other people mm. I have no room really for compassion or for care or anything like that because I'm too lost in my own stuff. But like getting to go over there and having like, you know, 45 days of sobriety or whatever it was um, and like listening to these people and caring about what's going on with them um, and being able to not give them advice but just share the space with them. that was probably the first thing that really changed for me um, in terms of like, I like the person that I am when I'm not high. Or that might be an overstatement at that point, mm-hmm. but it was like, I started to see more of like what my what my addiction was doing to me on a personal and interpersonal level. Um, it was just so isolating um, physically, but more emotionally than anything else. And just kind of like, I remember, man, um, there was this woman in there and she was dealing with some alcoholism issues and some other uh, mental health issues. And she was talking to me in the group about how, you know, her mother was on, um, the woman was on her deathbed and this woman's in recovery and she's working the steps and she doesn't know how to be with her mother, much less make amends or anything like that. And like, you know, I didn't have any answers for her, but when I was back at the apartment, I was reading this book 
that was just there when I got there. It's called um, The Tibetan Book of Living and Dying. And there's a whole section in there um, about how to, from a Buddhist perspective, which is something I know very little about, but mm-hmm. it's like how to be with the dying. And I, it's like, I'm sober, right? So I'm like, I wonder if this would be helpful to this person. And then I hem and haw about like, oh, I don't want to bring this book to her because I don't want to overstep and maybe she's super Christian and she'll be offended or whatever it was. And like I ended up giving her that book and just saying, hey, I was reading this and this section, maybe maybe it can help. Um, and the next week she came in and like she had written me this thank you note and it's nothing I did, you mm-hmm. know, but it was just like... Um, just a human connection, you know, of course, like, you know, the juxtaposition of that between that and like how I am when I'm high is just, um, it's like night and day. And I'm certainly not like that all the time. I, you know, I, I'm not trying to portray myself in, in that light, but like for, for that moment or that day, it was just like, wow, this is like, I'm, there's, uh, I'm missing so much, um, through my addiction. I'm just missing all this stuff. And that, um, I continued to go and volunteer like a day a week, even after I was at, out of treatment over at Lakeview and it just became something, I don't know, like it just became like, you know, it was just like an interconnectedness thing to where like I kind of, in some sense, I know like this is something that like I'm getting a lot out of and that is becoming important to me and I know if I, I know when and if I start getting high again, like I always have, mm-hmm. um, that kind of goes away. Yeah. Yeah. Part of my experience that I wanted to share because I've, I've, um, learned a lot from it. It's like, so I came through Mar and I have a massive opiate addiction and problems with, uh, amphetamines, um, in terms of Adderall and like by the time I left here I was good with that you know but um I you know I went home back to Atlanta after halfway and I stayed sober for around 10 months and then I decided that I could probably drink you know and it was like I think the first time was was out with some clients at a dinner at a steakhouse and like I've gotten some things back, you know, and mm-hmm. um, I'm going to have a glass of wine with uh, with dinner and I've earned this and it's fine. And I went home that night and feeling good because, you know, I had had that glass of wine and I didn't go buy drugs. I just mm-hmm. went home to go to bed. And then I woke up the next morning and the feeling had completely changed. Like, oh this is not good. This is a problem. And like, uh, I had to, I didn't do it the next day. Um, and I, you know, I had a couple of times at work where it's just like, I, I'm overwhelmed. I'm, I'm going to get some Adderall. And I did, but like, I eventually had to come clean about it and 
tell Doug and, um, you know, let everyone know. And, you know, the policy here, at least for ARP and mirror image group is like, if you relapse, which I did, um, you got to stay like away for 30 30 days. You can't be Mm -hmm. in any of the groups. And like that process of having to admit what happened, come and talk to Doug about it. Um, go to AA and like pick up a white chip and sit in meetings. You know, one of my home, my home group, like they always ask, you know, is, does anyone here have less than 30 days? Mm. And like for that whole month, like I raised my hand and it made my skin crawl. It was just like, this is terrible. And then I, I came back in and sat in with treatment team and it's just like (laughs) all these opportunities for humility that I had no interest in partaking Mm -hmm. (laughs) in, right? But um, that whole experience, which was like um, my my, uh, sobriety date is September 6th, 2019. So... coming up on on a year Mm. and like having gone through that process of like coming through mar and i learned so much and like going back out in the world and doing well for a while and thankfully like i did i never got back to a place where like i'm in active Mm -hmm. addiction again yeah and like i'm lying and i'm hiding and i'm using i've done that yeah you know multiple times right so i thankfully never got back there but that whole process of um, just being honest and learning how to be humble about it was uh, almost as big a deal as anything else, you know? And I'm very fortunate that I had a lot of people around me that, that cared about me a lot and you know, the big thing was just like picking up the phone and being like, this in fact happened. Mm-hmm. Um, and then just being able to um, just get in there and depend on other people and, and quite honestly fight and do everything that I can to get back into the middle of the road. Mm-hmm. Um, that whole process was... Um, really powerful you know how that normally goes for me historically is like i slip up i don't tell anyone i make excuses that it's going to be you know just this weekend or just this week or whatever it is and then fast forward the clock um sometimes four months sometimes six months and everything blows up again you know um and i'm left (laughs) kind of wondering like how did this happen to me Mm -hmm. again but it's because like i wasn't uh willing to to be honest and be humble about it so that that um whole experience was and remains like uh, really important to me like it's that thing of um i don't know if i'd change it Mm -hmm. you know Mm -hmm. It, it would be I guess in some way it would be very nice to be able to say that like, you know, I came through Mar and I accepted help and I learned all this stuff, all of those things I did. And it was just kind of like, you know, smooth sailing from there, so to speak. But like, that's, 
that is mostly what happened, but that's not all what happened. So um, that's certainly like a, a an important part of my story, and it's um, it's something uh, that. I don't always like to talk about, yeah. but but it's just like you got to move away from from that shame, right? Yeah, and and I really appreciate you sharing about that with the with the relapse and um because it's like I think that's another thing too that it's like a I've heard that from multiple people like wasn't that all the stuff that happened before that was a waste? It was like the foundation for for you not having to blow up your whole life again. Yeah. 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 And it's like when, when that happened, like the only reason that it didn't go the way that it normally goes is because of my experience here at Mar mm -hmm. and all the things that I, that I was taught and all the tools that I was given. And, um, it remains that way for me. It's like, I remember, you know, my 12 step stuff and I have a sponsor and I'm of service and all that stuff is integral to my recovery. Like it's not, it's not something I can remove from the equation and have it still work. Right. Um, but just like getting here and kind of settling in after that first month of just being completely scared and baffled and how the hell did this happen? Um, how, you know, how did I get here? All those things, which just like so many s things that I learned in here from staff members, from community members, mm -hmm. um, it's changed everything. And that like a lot of people say that, you know, you know, from a genetic standpoint, like, oh, I was born an alcoholic, I was born an addict. And that's, that's everyone's experience is their own. Like, that's not my experience. I just, I kind of kept, I kind of kept self-medicating mm -hmm. until I became an addict. But like being in here um, and learning, uh, you know, Matt, like I'm 32, like I'm going to be, you know, I would, I will turn 33 in December. And like, I've told Rick this before because me and him have become really close through Mirror Image Group and BBR and everything. And we're just like, I was talking to him last week. It's just like, um, I never really expected that I'd be alive at this point. Like, those were really my private thoughts. Mm -hmm. Like, before getting to Mar and like all the stuff that I was doing, um, putting myself in really risky situations, both with drugs and on my own. Like I just, you know, I'd gotten to a point where it's just like this whole, like, you know, I'm not going to be 35 years old ever. Like this is just not going to happen. And, um, in, 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 in some sense I was trying to do everything I could to survive but in another sense, it was just like, this is just, at some point, it's just going to end. Yeah. You know? Um, I wouldn't have told you that. Yeah. You know? Right, right. Yeah. It's just something you kind of knew. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. And doesn't feel like that now. No. It's uh, it's completely different, you know? Um, I, I showed up here and just like, 
through no one else's fault. It's like no one's blame for this, but you know, um, I was trying to live someone else's life. I have no idea who I am. I just have this big set of shoes in my mind that I just have to fill and everything has to be perfect. And like, I have to be, I have to live up, but like I, and privately I'm going to manage it with the substances I like to manage it with, but like, I don't really know who I am Mm -hmm. and I don't really know what I'm doing. And it's just like, I I sure as hell don't have like the answers for what my life is today um, beyond certain things. Like recovery is the most important thing to me. And like, without that, like, I don't know what's coming down the road, but like without recovery, it's, you know, it's either going to be not good or non-existent. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, I'll, you know, it's just, um, you know, it's just a very different place. Um, yeah, man. So, the, the and I mean, what I've just been, that fits in with what I've just been kind of reflecting on as we're talking that it's like, that it seems, I mean, one of the things that's really striking me about your story is that like the place career you know, kind of played or like the role that that had before you got here and the journey towards humility, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And what does humility mean to you today? Humility today means, and it allows me to, um, it allows me to connect with people, you know, it's mm-hmm. like always like you like in a business environment, like I am good. I can give presentations. I can do all that jazz. Yeah. But like in terms of just like being in a room with other people and trying to connect mm-hmm. with them and, and show up with humility and not be fearful or arrogant, which is really just fearful as well. Yeah. <laughs> you know, um, right. It, that's what my recovery is about, mm-hmm. you know, is being an, a sober, actual person that is not privately self-hating mm-hmm. and then publicly um, arrogant. Yeah, you know, and it's and it's just like this constant bid to like maybe one day I'll, I'll I'm treading all this water, but one day I'm going to get to land. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. One of the things that's hardest to, that has been hardest to, was harder before than it is now, but at varying degrees is difficult to accept is like, I hate the idea or the truth that like sobriety is enough. Mm. Like that's when I was coming back in ARP after that relapse. That's one of the things that Doug said to me is like, you know, Eric, like eventually being sober and being kind and good to the people around you is going to need to be enough. And I don't like that. Mm. You know, I, 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 sometimes I don't like that. Sometimes I can stay with it, but it's just, um, that's a humility thing too. I think, you know, more than anything else, what I focus on or how I'm able to kind of stay in that healthy place versus mm-hmm. that that other place is like I look at my life today and there's a degree of well-being and calm and just being okay 
that I, I've never really felt before. And that includes pre-addiction. Mm-hmm. Like, so if I'm in this spot now where I'm like, I feel like I'm going to be okay and nothing bad is going to happen. And like, that is something that's so wholly new to me Yeah, that a lot of the time um, it's so new and so unexpected that it, that is, uh, to put it lightly, sufficient. Mm-hmm. I remember the counselors asked me, he's like, okay, when I got my 60-day chip, it was like, when's the last time you had 60 days clean and sober? It's like, well, it was when I was in sixth grade. <laughs> so, like, now for once in my life, it's like the kind of chaos has started to clear and, like, mm-hmm. I actually have to deal with my life. And, like, I left here understanding that, like, there was still plenty of work to do, mm. which ended up being an asset rather yeah. than than the opposite, you know. So last question, what would you pass on to people that are listening if you could pass on one thing? Hmm. Every single one of us, people in general, um, we both require and deserve help from the people around us. And that is not a weakness or a shortcoming. That's being a human being. And it took me a very, very long time to learn that. Yeah. That's great, man. Thank you so much, Eric. Thanks for having me, man. This has been great. This is exactly what I needed today. Okay, me too. It was good, man. Thank you, man. Yeah. That's it for this episode of Stories of Recovery. I'm Matt Shedd. Our executive producer is David Tate. Thank you for joining us, and we look forward to having you next time.